I'm going to be reading from uh, Nehemiah chapter 12. And if you want to read along with me, then we're going to start in verses 27. And I'm going to read through to verses 47. It's another challenging passage. So do read along with me as the uh, words appear on the screen. It's entitled The Dedication of the Wall of Jerusalem. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving, with the music of cymbals, harps and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of Nephethites, from Beth Gilgal and from the area of Jeba, Asmaroth, from the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. I had the leaders of Judah go up to the top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed on the top of the wall to the right toward the dung gate. Hesiah and half of the leaders of Judah followed them, along with Aziah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, Jeremiah, as well as some of the priests with trumpets and also Zechariah, son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Matina, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zakur, and the son of Azaf, and his associates, Shemaiah, Azrael, Meliah, Galiah, May, Nathaniel, Judah, and Haniah, with the musical instruments prescribed by David, the man of God. Ezra, the teacher of the law, led the procession. At the fountain gate, they continued directly up the steps of the city of David on the ascent to the wall and passed above the site of David's palace to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall together with half of the people, past the tower of the ovens to the broad wall over the gate of Ephraim, the Jasana gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hanau, the tower of a hundred as far as the sheep gate. At the gate of the guard, they stopped. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their palaces in the house of God. So did I, together with half the officials, as well as the priests, Elikim, Messiah, Minim, Micaiah, Elaniah, Zechariah, and Haniah with their trumpets. Also, and also, Messiah, Shemaiah, Elzer, Uzzah, Jenhenum, Malchijah, Elam, and Ezar. The choirs sang under the direction of Josiah. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. At that time, the men were appointed to be in charge of the storerooms for their contributions, their first fruits, and their tithes. From the fields around the towns, they were to bring into the storerooms the portions required by the law for the priests and the Levites, for Judah was pleased with the ministering priests and Levites. They performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did also the musicians, the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there had been directors for musicians and for the songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. So in the days of Zerubbabel, 
and of Nehemiah, all of Israel contributed the daily portions for the musicians and the gatekeepers. They also set aside the portion for the other Levites. The Levites set aside the portions for the descendants of Aaron. Thank you, Zoe. Uh, if, if, we're, if we're studying Nehemiah and we don't give Zoe a passage to read out with a load of really difficult names, are we even studying Nehemiah together, I wonder? Uh, but thank you for doing that. I could have given you the whole chapter, but, you know, it could have been worse. It could have been worse. Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you and praise you for this opportunity to study your word together, to think about uh, some of the really important lessons that we learn in Scripture. And as we open up this passage together today, we pray, Father God, we will hear something of your heart for us this morning. We pray, Lord God, you will help us to live lives of celebration. We pray, Lord God, that we will know what it means to have true joy in our lives. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Well, after a brief but a challenging stop in the book of Daniel last week, where my friend Tim came and preached so well and so challengingly to us, we return to the book of Nehemiah for our final two weeks together. And today, as we open up this passage together, I want us to focus together on the art of celebration. And specifically, what I want to draw out this morning is how our attitudes towards any given situation that we might face really do matter. Let me tell you a story. There was once a farmer who lived on a farm for years. It was a great place to live, but he just could not see it. He would go around and he would look at the pig pen and he'd think, that's too small. He'd look at the house in which he lived and he'd think to himself, this is too cold. He would look at the pond and he would say, the water is too green. Until one day, he was walking around his farm, and he thought to himself, you know what, I have had it with this place. I'm getting out of here. I'm going somewhere else. So he went back to his house, and he got on the phone, and he phoned up an estate agent. He said, you've got to come over quickly because I'm selling up. I need to get you to put this ad out there as soon as possible. So the estate agent, he comes round to the farmer's house and he walks around the farm with the farmer and he's taking notes all of the way around until he gets to the end and he says, well, I think I've got enough information here now in order to write the ads. How does this sound to you? If there's anything I've missed out, feel free to add something in and we'll, we'll, stick, we'll get it out as quickly as possible. And the ad that this man wrote spoke of a great location. It spoke of a well-maintained house. It spoke of sturdy barns, of lush pastures, of a beautiful pond, of amazing views. And the farmer listens to this description of the farm, which was being read back to him. And he said, forget it. I'm not going to sell my farm after all. The estate agent was shocked. He was like, you wanted me to come over really quickly. Why on earth have you changed your mind all of a sudden? And the farmer replied and said, you know what? I have always wanted to live in a place like you have just described to me. You know, how we perceive a situation affects how we behave. And our attitudes can have a huge impact and make a huge difference in how we experience life in general. 
In our passage today, what we see is a celebration. So many exciting things have happened in the book of Nehemiah up to now, haven't they? Nehemiah hears from God about the situation and his heart is broken, so he mobilizes a people in order to go and build this wall in super quick times. The temple is restored. People move back to Jerusalem. Things are looking great. And what we see from our chapter today is the dedication of the wall. It was a celebration of all that had been achieved. This was a time to praise. This was a time to rejoice. Not because of what Nehemiah had done, but to praise God. And we read in this passage today that Nehemiah, what he does is he organizes two massive choirs with musicians and they walk around the wall, the perimeter of this wall, in a kind of Joshua-like fashion. And they're praising and they're singing and they're giving glory to God until they converge on the temple and they sing praises with all of these kind of instruments. This was a time of thanksgiving, not for Nehemiah, but for all that God had accomplished through Nehemiah and the people. And notice what we read in verse 27. The Levites were sought out from where they lived and brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully. The dedication with songs and thanksgiving and with the music of the symbols. The Levites were sought out to bring a joyful celebration. Jerusalem wasn't the finished article at this point. There were still final reforms to come, which we will read about next week together in Nehemiah chapter 13. But now was a time of celebration for all that God had done. I wonder how often we neglect to give thanks for what God has achieved in our lives. I wonder how often We are not joyful in our walk with God, but we allow ourselves to be dictated by the circumstances which we find ourselves in. You know, the Christian life is meant to be characterized by joy. And so often, let's be honest, we are not very good when it comes to joy. As Christians, we should be the most joyful people on the planet. But yet, so often, that's not the case. I mean, we're quite good at mustering up, aren't we, at times? That kind of false and fake kind of triumphalism at times. Praise the Lord, everything's all right. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Yeah, it's brilliant, it's brilliant. But inside, we feel like everything is dying and everything is going wrong. And we just kind of sweep it under the carpet and pretend those things aren't happening and everything feels like it's falling apart. I mean... You often see that kind of attitude at Christian funerals, don't you? Praise God that they're in a better place. Praise God that they're with Jesus. I'm so pleased for them. They're with Jesus. Isn't it wonderful? Yes, it is wonderful for them. They've died. They've gone to be with Jesus. They've gone to glory. They're in his presence forever. But do you know what? For us who are left behind is rubbish. We miss them. We mourn, and that's okay. It's okay not to be happy. It's okay to find things difficult. It's okay to weep and to cry. Jesus wept. So often we get joy and we get happiness mixed up. Joy and happiness are so often confused, and they're actually two very different things. Happiness is based upon our happenings. So if life is going to plan, and actually things are okay, actually then we experience happiness. Joy, 
on the other hand, is not based upon what is happening in our life right now. It's based on an intimate relationship with Christ. Therefore, our circumstances don't dictate our joy. Happiness is circumstantial. Joy is relational. You know, I have known some of the most hard up and hard done by people in the world. I've met people who have literally been in the pit of despair, people who have been in extreme poverty. When I was at college, I had to go out to Zimbabwe for a short time. And when I was out in Zimbabwe, I was helping at a Baptist church out there in Bulawayo who run a soup kitchen. And people would travel for days in order to get a hot meal. They would would literally walk for days just to get one hot meal in this church. It was the only time they could get food. And yet, I was absolutely stunned and shocked by the joy of some of these people that I was able to sit down with and just talk to. They had nothing, literally nothing. They walked for miles in order to get what we take for granted. And yeah, they were joyful because they knew Jesus. I met people who stare death in the face because of horrible diseases and and, and things going on in their lives. And yet you just want to be around these people because they're so joy-filled. Even though everything in their life should say, you should be wallowing right now in the pit of despair, and they probably do have really, really tough days. They're just so life-giving and life-affirming. You see, joy is relational. When we know Jesus Christ, when he is our rock, then ultimately this world can throw anything at us, and our joy will not necessarily disappear or diminish because it's in him. Let's be honest, though. These are really tough times, aren't they? These are certainly the toughest times that I have known in my life. I want to ask you the question, in the midst of these times, how has your attitude been in the past few days, in the past few weeks, in the past few months? Are you being dictated by your circumstances? We probably all have over this time. Things have got so on top of us that we just want to lash out. Or is joy the thing which is driving you right now? You see, we're confronted today with a choice. Do we allow those circumstances that we all overtake us and crush us? Or will we choose to intentionally adopt an attitude which looks beyond our present circumstances and our present suffering to a God who is in control? The God, as we read about in the Psalms at the beginning, who sits above the floods. You see, the attitudes that we adopt in life will either restrict our living or they will eventually propel us to abundant life. What does a restrictive attitude look like? A restrictive attitude focuses solely on our circumstances. It would be the kind of attitude which just sits back and gives up and goes, you know what, this isn't worth it right now. I'm going to tap out and do something else. A restrictive attitude is a kind of when and then kind of attitude. When I've paid off my mortgage, then I'll be happy. When the kids have left home, then I'll be happy. When coronavirus has finished, then I'll be happy. When there's a vaccine which is found and is rolled out and we can get back to normal, then I'll be happy and I will experience the things that I experienced before. A restrictive attitude allows us to wallow in a pit of worry. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if the worst case scenario happens in my life? A restrictive attitude constantly puts our needs before the needs of others. It's all about me. Woe is me. In some ways, 
if we're honest, it's our default position, isn't it? Because to one degree or another, we all are intrinsically selfish. You see, because that's the way we're programmed. Because of the sin which entered into this world and thus entered into our lives, we are programmed often to think after and look after number one. So when our circumstances make us feel uncomfortable, we worry. We put our needs first before other people's. We look for material gain in order to try to make us happy and to make things comfortable for us again. But an attitude of joy is intentional. The Levites were sought out to bring joyful praise. Why? Because intentionally adopting an attitude of joy rubs off on others. As I was thinking about this subject of an attitude of joy, I couldn't help but be drawn to the Apostle Paul. I'm sure you all know Paul's story, and I'd encourage you, if you want to think about this subject more, to read the book of Philippians uh, in your study and in your quiet times. And I think the situation that Paul faced in Philippi when he was in prison was a pretty bleak one. But Paul knew hardships before that particular situation as well. Paul was a man who had been shipwrecked. He was a man who had been beaten to the point of death. He was a man who had been run out of town. But if we were to look at the book of Philippians together today, we would notice that not only was Paul in prison, but he was literally chained to a guard for the entire duration of his custody. This was the total reverse of social distancing. He was chained and bound to another human being, and that would have been his experience for at least two years. It made both escape and it made both privacy absolutely impossible for the Apostle Paul. That would have been his life. And it would have been incredibly easy for Paul in those situations to think to himself, right, I'm done. Life is over. It's never going to be the same again. I'm useless from here on in. There's nothing that I can do about my situation and circumstances, so I might as well just give up. What use am I to anyone? And in Paul's time, when someone wrote a letter, their primary purpose of writing a letter would be to inform their friends and families of the condition that they were in. And generally, a letter would start with a greeting, and then it would move on to a statement. And that's exactly, if we were to look at the book of Philippians, what we see Paul writing in the book of Philippians, we see a uh, a greeting to start with, and then a statement about his situation and about his circumstances. But what the people who read the book of Philippians, the original letter of Philippians, would have seen would have been surprising for them. They were concerned about Paul's condition and what he was going through in prison, but Paul doesn't write in a kind of melancholy way, a woe is me kind of way, everything's falling apart kind of way. No, instead what they read is a message which says to them, you know what, this could have halted everything, this could have stopped everything, but guess what, it hasn't, God is good, and the message of the gospel is spreading because of the chains that I find myself in. I'm not going to be dictated by my circumstances. This is hard. This is not where I want to be. I want to be going to Rome and I want to be preaching the gospel. But do you know what? God's plans and his purposes are still coming to pass, so I'm going to be joyful in the midst of them. Paul didn't see the fact that he was tied to a guard as a hindrance. Rather, he saw that as an opportunity. 
You see, what he would do is he would share the gospel with the guards that he was chained to. He literally had a captive audience, and that guard would then go off when he was off duty and talk to the other guards about all the things that Paul had said. Did he say this to you? Yeah, he said that to me as well. And a conversation would start up among the guards. And what was happening is the gospel began to be shared. The message puts this version of events like this. I want to report to you, friends, that my imprisonment here has had the opposite of its intended effect. Instead of being squelched, the message has actually prospered. All the soldiers here and everyone else too found out that I am in jail because of this Messiah. That piqued their curiosity. And now they have learned all about him. This time is hard. This time is rough. I have my down days, yes, but I've been able to share Jesus. And what's happening when I share Jesus is other people are going and sharing Jesus and the gospel is being preached. And you see, not only did Paul's attitude cause the gospel to spread among the guards, but his attitude had a direct effect on other believers as well. What we see is that Paul's attitude rubs off on them. You see, people saw how Paul was living and that despite his circumstances, and people saw how he responded to difficulties. And then people started to think to themselves, maybe I could live like that too. Maybe I could be bold in sharing the gospel. Maybe I could live with this intentional joy which really does make a difference. So the challenge for us today I believe is simple. The Levites were sought out to bring praise. What is our attitude like at the moment? What attitude have you adopted in this season and in these times? What attitude have I adopted in this time? And the question we need to ask this morning is what does an attitude of joy, an intentional attitude of joy, actually look like? Firstly, I believe that if we are to adopt an attitude of joy, it means seeing things from God's perspective. I call it a Romans 8.28 way of thinking. I'm sure you know the verse. We read in Romans 8.28 these words. And we know that in all things, God works for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. That means despite what we go through, despite what happens in life, God is on the throne and works out everything for his glory and for our good. That's why for Paul, being in chains, being restricted, being locked down wasn't a horrible loss of freedom for him. It would have been hard, but God was bigger than the circumstances that he faced. That's why when Nehemiah faces opposition back in a few chapters previously, and in fact it could have cost him his life if you remember, It doesn't make him say, forget it, let's give up, let's go home, let's try something else. He was able to push through because his circumstances didn't dictate his joy and therefore he was able to carry on. He saw through the eyes of faith like we read about in Romans 8, 28. God is working in this, all things together for good for those who love him. You know, generally when we look at a situation, we only see the obvious, don't we? But Romans 8.28 shows us that there is a whole lot more going on in any given situation and circumstance that we just don't see. From a biblical perspective, it's evident, isn't it, in the story of Lazarus. I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but Lazarus is a man in the Gospels who gets sick, really sick, and a message is sent to Jesus about the fact that Lazarus is sick, and Jesus does nothing. He stays where he is. And whilst Jesus stays where he is, 
Lazarus dies. And eventually Jesus goes to Lazarus and we, we know what happens. He raises him from the dead. The sisters come out to meet Jesus and they say, if you had just done what you were supposed to do, if you had just come earlier, then none of this would have happened. He would have still been alive. Jesus does turn up and he does raise Lazarus from the dead. But when we look at this particular passage in a bit more depth, what we see is Lazarus had to die. Because it was in the fact that Lazarus died and then was subsequently raised to life by Jesus that it kicked off a whole chain of events which ended up with Jesus eventually going to the cross. There's a bigger picture going on here. A Romans 8:28 attitude says, God, I can't quite understand what I'm facing right now, but I know that you know what you're doing. Therefore, I'm going to trust in you that you're going to help me through it, that you're going to see us through to the other side, that that light at the end of the tunnel is not a myth, but it is going to come to pass. Secondly, if we're going to live with an intentionally joyful attitude, it means living with God's priorities at the forefront of our life. In order to have a joyful attitude, we need to really come to the realisation of what is important and what isn't. You see, when our priorities don't match God's priorities, we end up being a people who are reactionary to every situation rather than proactionary to every situation. In other words, if our priorities are wrong, we will end up lurching from one crisis to the next and keep going like this all the time and all the way through life. What happens is we end up just simply fighting fires rather than doing what God is calling us to do. I mean, to some extent, we see it in the book of Philippians, don't we? We can read these words in Philippians 1.15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from a false motive or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. You see, what happens when Paul is in chains is that it appears that there are two groups of people who are going about preaching the gospel. There are friends of Paul's. Paul is no longer about. So those go out and they preach the gospel out of goodwill, effectively picking up where Paul has left off whilst he is in prison. But there's another group who wanted to do Paul some harm. Paul was in prison because of his faith. So they think to themselves, well, how can we stir up a little bit of trouble for Paul at this moment? I know what we can do. We can make things really uncomfortable for him. We'll go out and we will preach the gospel. And that way the authorities will get even more mad and they'll make Paul's life even more hard for him while he's in prison and we will be victorious and Paul's attitude to this is not woe is me this is going to make things a whole lot harder for me my life is going to get worse from this point on his attitude is praise God the gospel is being preached Paul realized that the important thing was that people heard the good news about Jesus And if these people who wanted to cause trouble for Paul really wanted to cause trouble for Paul, the only way they could do that was by preaching the authentic gospel of Jesus. And Paul gains joy in the fact that people were hearing the truth about Jesus despite the motive of those people who were sharing it. Paul realised the priority here was about Jesus and his kingdom coming and his will being done. It wasn't about his comfort. So therefore he says, praise God. 
God is doing what he was always going to do. So when things in our life come along, which could potentially rob us of our joy and give us a bad attitude towards everything going on, we do need to ask ourselves the question, what is the bigger picture here? Where is God moving in the midst of this? What is he doing? How can God use this situation for his glory? And that is what we need to hold on to. Sometimes we won't see it, but know that God always works out the situations that we face for our good and for his glory. Number three, we need the power to live for God. We need God's power in order to live for him. Paul says this in Philippians 1.19, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Paul is saying there are two things here which keep me going. The prayers of other people and the power of the Holy Spirit. Prayer is one of the most important tools that we have in living with a joy-filled attitude. Jesus exhorted his followers to pray for strength. He said this, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. A prayer-filled life leads to a joy-filled attitude. Let me say that again because we all need to hear that because so often in the midst of trials and in the midst of struggles, the one thing that is so easy to let go of is our prayer life. But a prayer-filled life leads to a joy-filled attitude. As Jesus told his disciples, we need to be a people who pray for strength and we need others to pray for us too. That's why things like church prayer meetings, I believe, are so important. We need to come together to pray. And by the way, over the next two days, there are two opportunities at least for you to come together and pray. Tonight, we're going to be joining with our Southwest Baptist Association family of churches to pray together for his kingdom to come, his will to be done here in the Southwest. Tomorrow night, you can join us as a church and pray together at seven o'clock where we meet every single week to focus on Jesus and to pray for his will to be done. You can join us for staff prayers Monday to Friday at 9.30. These things are important because hearing the prayers of others strengthens us. It helps us to realize that we're not walking this journey alone that we are part of a family. Paul goes on to say in Philippians, be anxious for nothing, but in all things, through prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving, make your request known unto God, because then the peace of God, which surpasses uh, all understanding, will guard your heart and mind. Prayer changes our perspective on things, and prayer strengthens us and others for the fight. Prayer also makes us right with God. And if you want to live by God's power, if you want to live with a joy-filled attitude, it doesn't come from dedicating a wall like we've read about this morning in uh, Nehemiah. It comes from dedicating our hearts. We read this in Nehemiah chapter 12 and verse 30. When the priests and the Levites had purified themselves ceremoniously, they purified the people, the gates and the wall. Purification, I believe, is necessary to celebrate. You cannot be joyful with a hypocritical heart. You cannot celebrate when your life is in ruin. It becomes a festival of empty words. There is a need for a purification to take place. We read these words in Psalm 24, verses 3 to 6. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, his saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. How are we made pure today, church? It's through Jesus. John puts it like this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all iniquity. So it's important that we learn to come before God and admit our faults and admit our failures. If we want to live in a joyful way, it means coming towards to God every day and bowing the knee and saying, God, forgive me for my bad attitudes. Forgive me for the things that I have done wrong. Forgive me for the way that I've gone astray from your path to my life. And you know, we read that because Jesus came to earth, he, he died on a cross in a death that we deserved and was raised to life. We can know forgiveness and we can know that we can start again. How is your attitude today, church? Are you walking around at the moment with a bad attitude? Are you finding negatives in every situation? Are you just really struggling right now? I believe that today God wants to change your attitude and give you a joy-filled attitude where you can say, do you know what? These times are hard, but God is good. And I'm going to be committed to walking the way he wants me to walk. You know, we can't do it without him. Number four, a joy-filled attitude is an attitude of hope. I think of Paul again, and I think of the situation that he found himself in the book of Philippians. Paul knew that he would ultimately be delivered. He didn't know how that deliverance would come. It might be that his deliverance would come because he would be released from prison. But it might be that his deliverance would come because he would end up dying and therefore going to be with the Lord. Either way, his confidence in the gospel meant it didn't matter what people did to him because he was on the winning side. Now, one of my bugbears is that so often Christians give Satan too much credit, don't we? The language that we can use at times where we talk about Satan almost points to this fact that God is in this dualistic battle with Satan and they're kind of struggling and there's this eternal struggle going on for who is going to win and who is going to come out on top and they're locked in this eternal battle for supremacy but you know that simply isn't the case the Bible tells us that Satan comes to kill to steal and to destroy But what the Bible also makes clear is that God is over and above the enemy and God wins. There is nothing that Satan can do to change that at all. And that means that whatever the enemy throws at us in our life, whether that be coronavirus, whether that be cancer, whether that be uh, people persecuting us because of our faith, whatever the enemy throws at us in our life, we can have confidence and hope because we're on the winning side. Hope is essential for a joy-filled attitude. A university did a study on 25,000 prisoners of war from World War II looking at their cases. And what they found when they did this study was that humans could undergo tremendous levels of pressure and tremendous levels of stress as long as they had hope. The moment their hope was lost, they were doomed. So today, let me challenge you. What are you hoping in? Are you hoping in money? Family, friends, church, a vaccine? Are you hoping that life is going to get back to normal quite quickly? If you want to change your perspective in life, 
If you want your outlook on the situation to be different, there is only one place that you can draw your hope from. Jesus. He doesn't want you to be burdened. He doesn't want you to be weighed down. He doesn't want you to be experiencing a joyless life. He wants you to experience a joy-filled life. So with that, let me ask you again this morning, one more time, what is your attitude looking like right now? Are you a negative person, always seeing the wrong in everything? God wants to set you free from the burden today. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And as we finish the message this morning, and as we come into a time of response, I want us this morning to spend some time celebrating together. Not in a vain kind of, hallelujah, everything's all right, let's sweep our problems under the carpet kind of way. Because it is tough at the moment. Life is hard at the moment. Do you know, over the course of the past few months, I don't think there's ever been a time in my 15 years of ministry or so that I've wanted to tap out more. There's never been a time where I've come home after a day's work and go, do you know what, this just isn't worth it. And I'm not saying that because I want you to feel sorry for me. Because we've all had those days and we've all had those times and we've all had those thoughts and feelings and emotions over these last six months or so or however long it's been. And the reality is we don't know how much longer we've got to live like this, do we? It could be a couple of months if this vaccine sorts itself out. It could be a lot longer. But however long we live in this time, we can know joy. We can know that God is in control and he is on the throne and he knows what he's doing. And as a result of that, we've got something to celebrate. So church, let's all take a moment this morning to look at our attitudes. And in this moment, let's intentionally choose to celebrate. The circumstances of life aren't how I would choose them to be right now. But God is good and is on the throne. You know, I, I, part of my week this week, I was, I was trying to find uh, an old Songs of Praise episode. In fact, it was an old Songs of Praise episode that Hope Baptist Church finished, uh, featured on. Because I remember, this was before I had any association with Hope Baptist Church. I remember watching that episode, and I remember watching a clip with Andrew Gardner in that episode. And I'm pretty sure that he was speaking on something very similar to what I have spoken on this morning. You can have joy in the midst of hard times. You can celebrate in the midst of hard times. You can know God's favor in the midst of hard times. We're going to sing together this morning, blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful. Blessed be your name when I'm found in the desert place. Let's not switch off at this point. Let's not go and put on our Sunday roast. But let's use this song as a prophetic declaration this morning that even though life might be tough, I'm going to celebrate. The Levites were sought out to bring joyful praise. Let's intentionally praise the name of Jesus this morning.
And as we sing, why don't you write your prayers of praise and your celebrations in the comments? Let's let our words prophetically speak to our hearts this morning. Whatever life throws at us, we're on the winning side. Jesus is on the throne and he's in control. Let's worship church and let's celebrate together.